welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, is out now from first second, and you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Um, My research focuses on gender studies, critical prison studies, and museum studies. Uh, I also make self-published comics, mostly. So So. uh, this episode is actually really inspired by Remus's work, um, what they're working on right now. Um, so Remus, do you want to talk about what you are working sure. on? Sure. Yeah. So inspired by means that I didn't really have time to do additional research on anything else. Um, hey. So I- <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, I mean, that's you know, let's be- l- l- legit. So I, I, um, I've been working on for a while this, um, this paper on sort of how trans masculine comic artists create kinds of trans subjectivity in their autobiographies basically mm. so what i'm going to kind of be doing is sharing my work in this paper and like that research because Kathy was kind enough to let me do that for an episode <laughs> um and i, think, I mean I'll well, ex- i think it's really interesting and cool i think people would <laughs> love to hear it and i mean i'll i'll like explain more a little bit in a second but essentially what i was working on is titty chop boob slash uh, which is a comic that we've actually talked about on the podcast before in the um trans memoir episode was it trans memoir no this is an old 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 episode it's um oh memoir comics in general yeah yeah it was episode three from 2017 <laughs> Yeah. So I've been working with this comic for a while. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so Titty Shop Boob Slash and then uh, You Don't Have to Be Afraid of Me by Victor Martins, um, which I don't think I've talked about here before. So I sort of look through both of them and like what each is doing as case studies. Um, and a large part of this is sort of trying to f- make and this is true of all of my work. I'm trying to like make a framework of analysis that's less interested in like and I talk about masculinity in this, right? So either you're talking about like masculinities or femininities or whatever those various categories are. Um, but what I'm really interested in is looking at like cisgender and transgender as like categories and trying to like mm. work through that. So it's like a subtle shift, but it's not like there are other scholars that do this, but like it's not as common, basically. And I feel like it's useful. I mean, we are this is going to be episode 25. Yeah. So it also I feel like it is useful for us to continue building off of the work that we've done. So we don't keep having to do like foundational work. Like I feel like we can finally. Yeah. Go beyond that; those foundations that we've already laid out for ourselves. Yeah, to get a little deeper into our topics. Yeah. So inspired by uh, the work that Remus has been doing on trans masculinity, I decided to do um, in previous episodes uh, on episode seventeen, our transgender school climate episode and memoir. I talked about like mostly policies within schools, right, and where we're at. And then in episode 18, I talked about masculinity and how that presents in school climates and how art education can kind of interfere with that. 
So today, what I'm going to be doing is in my section after Remus does their section, um, I'm going to be more focused on sort of the latest in child development research, um, specifically research on how development of transgender children and gender stereotyping in children. Um, and then I also get into some resources on working with younger ages about transgender identity, um, including lesson plans and books. Um, so sort of mm-hmm. focusing on younger ages, which I think is going to be really cool and great. And also I feel like there's like a really sort of a changing climate with transgender child development. Yeah. Where before it was like so, this is the right word for it, pathologized as like a medical problem. Yes. Right? Or like a social issue. And I feel like those attitudes have really changed. So I actually found a lot of really positive and really cool child development papers, um, which I'm really excited about. That's a cool. I'm excited to hear that. Thanks. Um, so if you're ready, Remus, you can get started. Sh- sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I want, I'm going to just sort of, I think, kind of go through and summarize the key stuff. This is not, I did not like format this good for podcasting. <laughs> so, but um, ah, who cares? So bear with me. <laughs> but I'm, I want to start, I think, by sort of establishing why I was looking at this. And so I want to kind of briefly gloss sort of how in comic studies, autobiographical queer narratives are talked about. There's this sort of lineage, this sort of established historical lineage of comics publishing that isn't comic books, like superhero comics, that traces like... So the underground comics movement, um, which I think we sort of glossed in previous episodes, began in the 1960s, right? And that was really a movement of these very radical self-published comic texts um, moving sort of outside the, the corporate system of comics publishing. In the 80s and 90s, this sort of gives way uh, or is traced into usually through Art Spiegelman, like moving from raw to like Mouse's publication, Hmm. the graphic novel format. So, you know, underground comics sort of begets these sort of 80s and 90s alternative comics that lead to the creation of the comic book store as like a physical place that you go and buy comics and also Mm -hmm. like into graphic novels. So generally, that's a pretty limited narrative, right? Like that's the movement from self-published to, again, sort of being published in these small press situations. And obviously nowadays, graphic novels um, are sort of their own thing with like a like there's a whole bunch of other considerations yeah like the difference between like a comic publisher and like a book publisher putting out graphic novels right yeah which was not a thing back right it's like that's sort of the general lineage like if you read why comics by hillary shoot if you read uh charles hatfield's like analysis of alternative comics really like any major scholars uh like tracing of that it's gonna generally move like underground comics into graphic novels and usually Mm -hmm. with regards to queer comics specifically Alison Bechdel kind of is the case study for this she started making comics in the 80s 90s right and was sort of involved in those like more like grassroots comics networks and then comes out with a graphic novel fun home sort of becomes a more mainstream so there's like a, a I'm getting at there's sort of like a specific lineage that is just sort of accepted right. um, that everyone sort of works right, with, right, right. right? So my point is that that's not sufficient to talk about 
I think contemporary self-published comic narratives generally and especially queer and trans narratives. So uh, I'm not the only scholar that talks about this. Uh, my professor, Margaret Galvin, also has written a lot about the need to sort of pay attention to queer grassroots networks. But cool. essentially what I am kind of doing in this is looking at how contemporary comics by trans people in the self-published scene are largely pulled like there's a little there's that underground comics lineage right but there's also a lineage of other forms of queer subculture publishing so zines being the big one um queer core and riot girl zines um which we've talked about on this podcast right but you can also think about really any form of like subculture publishing is going to sort of play into this lineage so it's more useful to think of the underground as sort of like one of many and not just like the one that started everything so i'm going to talk so i'm going to move from that into talking about the comics i guess does that make sense (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay cool awesome so I'm talking about trans masculinity specifically here. I'm really interested in masculinity as in general. My understanding of masculinity is pretty influenced by, I mean, we've talked about, you know, if you've listened to the episode on masculinity, you know this, but like, not just like queer trans theorists about masculinity, like especially Jay Prosser, um, but Raywin Connell's definition of hegemonic masculinity. So masculinity is a social practice mm. that exists only in relationship to itself and other like models of gender and is also deeply influenced by race and class as categories. So like an um, intersectional definition of masculinity. Right. So both of these comics that I talk about, the fact that they're comics is sort of key to what they're able to do because there's sort of these established tropes of trans autobiography which again i think i've talked about previously but to recap the trans autobiography trope is sort of this idea of um as jay prosser sort of points us to in second skins uh in order to access health care as a trans person if you want to transition so we're sort of talking about a specific kind of trans person but if you want to transition in medically you have to sort of be able to you have to sort of be able to sell a certain narrative to a doctor right so there's a cis medical institution defined narrative of transness and trans people have sort of mm. learned to map their life into this series of events so Prosser described right. this we did talk about this Yeah, so Prosser describes this essentially as this is a fixed format that allows the trans body to become quote-unquote real because you're able to go through these doctor's offices. And so then people often, at the time, people would often go on to publish these narratives because they've basically already written them, right? Because they've already had to tell somebody (laughs) this story. Right. So this this sort of results in uh, an archetypal story of transness. Which is nowadays not as common as it used to be, I would say. Like, just if you just, like, think about sort of, like, the conversation around what it means to be transgender is, like, so radically different now. But there are definitely still, I think, in narratives, certain fixed ideas of, like, what the archetypal trans life is, right? Usually you start out with, like, the child that wants to cross-dress or, like, doesn't want to, like, perform gender correctly. And then there's always, like, a this sort of tension there, right? I I think what's interesting is actually maybe the transition is also to like a better understanding of not just a binary gender like right. so, like a loosening of gender roles and mm-hmm. culturally as well perhaps yeah yeah cuz part of the like part of the reason the 
archetypal narrative is the way that it is, is that cis doctors would only approve transition if they thought that you were going to become like a perfect straight hegemonic person of your gender. Right. Right. Like, it, it required, a, like, you to be heterosexual. It also, um, particularly for trans women, required you to be conventionally attractive. Mm, horrible. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, obviously this, like, archetypal narrative is not the fault of trans people, but it has emerged sort of through this, like, cis hegemonic pressure of the medical institution. Mm-hmm. Which brings me sort of to uh, to Chop Boob Slash, which is actually a kind of medical transition narrative, which is why I'm, like, fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. So Titty Shot Boob Slash is Higu Rose's comic sort of recounting their experience getting top surgery through a loophole in their insurance, wherein they don't get like full top surgery, which is when you sort of like have the chest flattened and also reshaped to be more masculine, but they get a breast reduction because that's like covered through their dad's insurance, basically. Mm. The comic is structured episodically, so it's a series of like vignettes, and each vignette is from a specific month, like leading up to the surgery, and then a couple of months afterwards documenting recovery. And so, like I said, this is interesting to me because this sort of first-person narrative about pursuing medical um, some element of medical transition is a more common kind of trans autobiography. But I think it, and what Rosa's really doing is sort of using that to critique the cis medical narrative, which is really interesting to me. And, and like part of this, right, is that Rose isn't like the typical archetypal tr- like white masculine trans guy, right? Like Rose is a... Um, and a gender black person. So like they're already sort of working against this white middle class dominant discourse that uh, Matthew Hines kind of identifies in Entering Trans Masculinity, The Inevitability of Discourse. Um, and in that book, Hines sort of documents how contemporary trans masculine discourse is sort of very different than like it used to be basically, right? But he does this by like going through people's transition vlogs on YouTube and like Reddit and Twitter and like all this like really interesting material. So he identifies that there is still a like white middle class trans masculine discourse, but that there are people that sort of work against that discourse. And like Rose would be an example of someone that's sort of like entering against that discourse, right? So it's doing two things here, right? It's disrupting the idea of this archetypal medical narrative, and it's also disrupting this idea of, like, what being transmasculine means. Um, The way Rose talks about their body is interesting. I spend a little bit of time, um, ah, the podcasting thing about describing pages. (laughs) I'm just going to read exactly what I've written, I think, and hopefully that'll be helpful. All right. Yeah, go for Rose's it. Rose's depiction of yeah. their body on the page becomes a productive site for examining their navigation of cis gazes against their own experiences of gender. Um, and one important sequence, their full body stretches diagonally across the page, clothed in tight-fitting black fabric that emphasizes the figure they are desperate to be rid of. Um, their arms bent obscure their face, while text cascading around their figure offers reasons to like their body, such as, I have nice legs, makeup makes me look hot, fact. But we understand by this point that this is not the body that Higu wants. The first lines on this page ask, so how do you survive in a body that disgusts you? To contend with the tension between their how they perceive their body and how they see other people as perceiving their body, they come up with a phrase, body Stockholm syndrome, as a way of basically indicating how they are being held hostage by constructions of gender that entrap their body. Um, and I, body Stockholm syndrome uh, echoes 
I think Riki and Wilchin's argument in uh, What Does It Cost to Tell the Truth, which I know I have talked about before because I love Wilchin's. Um, and What Does It Cost to Tell the Truth, Wilchin's essentially argues that in order to grasp our bodies, trans people must construct our self-identification through the gaze of other cis people. Um, and not just cis people, actually, but just other people in general, since it is in the meanings reflected back at us through culture we find truth. So body Stockholm Syndrome then can be understood as an articulation of how trans self-identification is held hostage by cisgender ideas of how bodies should be labeled. Um, but at the same time, I think calling it body Stockholm Syndrome points out that that dynamic is really incredibly abusive, right? Like Stockholm Syndrome is a, such a loaded phrase. But I think yeah. that what Rose does here is actually sort of offer a way out of this sort of like construct of like being trapped by the gazes of others. Because what Rose does then, they sort of break down the body into this series of a sort of floral motifed body horror, wherein like flowers literally grow from the pores of their flesh and like overtake them. And it's like very <laughs> deliberately, like pleasantly grotesque. And this sort of becomes mm. basically the, the the true body becomes something that exists out of the bounds of literal representation, right? And so, like, the way Rose Rose uses these, and this sort of brings us back to this point I was trying to make earlier about zines, is that Rose sort of uses these, like, symbolic representations in, like, a really zine-y way. Um, so they also do, like, collages of, like, uh, like erotic panels from yaoi manga to, like, identify with how, like, yaoi manga artists draw male chests mm. in that very, like, soft and feminine way. So just to define yaoi, not that... I don't want to make assumptions about our listeners. So that is, like, erotic Japanese male comics, basically, right? Yeah, and there's actually a lot of interesting writing about, like, gendering in yaoi manga <laughs> and, like, what those uh, kind of representations of masculinity are doing. Yeah, we've looked on it at it before, but I I've usually have, am a bit unsatisfied with... <laughs> Yeah, I suspect the really like the useful stuff is going to be in Japanese, which I can't read. So someday, (laughs) Um, yes, someday. So these like moments of like identification with things that don't represent what like a cisgender masculinity should be basically continue throughout. There's this great moment when Rose is like talking to their doctor, and we have this like we can see Rose's reaction. So the doctor says that there's a chance that their nipples might fall off as like a warning about the surgery. Higu on the page reacts with like this exaggerated joy. Like Rose draws themselves with like these wide blown eyes and drooling and like covered in hearts um, and like uh, collages in an image of the monster from the fly as like a, oh, I might look like this kind of thing, right? And we're seeing Rose's sort of like miss fired reaction right like this incorrect reaction basically to this idea of being gender deviant like permanently marked as gender deviant and at the same time we also see the doctor's clipboard um and on the doctor's clipboard you can see that the doctor has written gender and then effing freak so like we're getting this sort of like this double play of really emphasizing Rosa's failure basically right to conform to the cis masculine ideal that the doctor would assume that they would want to be. And so, like, again, a huge part of this book and the reason I think it works really well is an example of, like, how those medical narratives can be sort of positioned as critique is the the, the book doesn't end in the successful transition of gender, right? It's not really about 
Rose becoming a man mm. at all, which is Rose isn't a man in the first place. But like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It ends in this sort of moment of intimacy between Higu and um, their then partner. And so I'll, again, I'll just read what I wrote. Um, this scene also entangles gender subjectivity with queer sexuality and desire as the culminating moment of the narrative maps Rose's embodiment through queer intimacy. Um, this is important because much of the archetypal trans narrative rests on an assumption of conforming to heterosexual cisgender expression, where alignment of the trans body with cis expectations of how body should look and work includes participating in heterosexual desire. So essentially, by linking their masculine gender subjectivity uh, in the comic with feminine symbolism and eroticism, monstrous others such as the monster from the fly, and queer sexuality, Rose develops a textual transmasculinity that unsettles cisgender categories and points us towards the fluid and often disruptive nature of transgender subjectivity. So that is the one that was sort of a, sort of what I was working through with um, Titty Chop, mm. and, and I think honestly, like there's still like a lot even that I couldn't like touch on in this of of just how Rose sort of does bodies and like medical narrative in like a trans way, but you know there's limits to publishing. So <laughs> then I sort of talk about you don't have to be afraid of me and you don't have to be afraid of me is a little bit different and it was actually a little bit more difficult for me to write about because it doesn't have like it's almost easier to write about Titty Chop because it's so much about like bodies and reaction to bodies and like it's so easy to write about bodies because the literature is just all there, right? Like we we talk a lot about bodies oh. in queer and trans theory, which makes sense because we all are stuck with bodies, unfortunately. Yeah. So what uh, Martins is sort of doing and you don't have to be afraid of me is instead talking about their experiences growing up basically as a person who believed they were a girl and was gendered as a girl and thus experienced sort of like typical violence that young women usually experience at the hands of men and then having a that pivotal like oh no I am a man kind of trans moment right so it's more about it's like looking more mm -hmm. at sort of the social tensions like the the relationship between like and this is, I think, why it's exciting to me is that it's very much sort of about like how do, how as a transmasculine person do you then contend sort of with what masculinity means, what masculinity represents at the hands of like cis men, like your complicity in the masculine project, like all that kind of stuff. To talk about this, I actually mm. talked a lot a little bit about Sarah Ahmed's um, idea of girling, um, which he talks about in the book Living a Feminist Life. So Ahmed describes girling as um, being taught what it is to have a body. Quote, you are being told you will receive my advances. You are object, thing, and nothing. Um, girling then occurs through a process of repetition wherein the body is marked as girl and is made to behave in certain ways and accept certain power dynamics where violence too is a mode of address. So I, I, I wanted to point to that because it is sort of a useful way of thinking about the social process of gender and sort of what – and like a – and, and there's limitations to this obviously. Um, it's like tricky to talk about this with – I, I want to like be very clear that the way I'm trying to talk about this is not really about – it's about socialization, but not about socialization, because I think socialization is actually insufficient um, to sort of describe the gendering experience that children undergo. Yeah, so what 
what's the definition what's the queer theory definition of social i don't know if there's like a specific queer theory definition but generally the idea is that you as a child you are like taught basically what it means to be the gender that you have been assigned at birth usually through how you're being disciplined right so you can think about how like um little girls are told to like that if a boy is mean to her it's because he likes her um the issue with that is that it doesn't account for the ways that children are also taught about how other genders are supposed to perform because it's not an individualized process. You know, like I and I, I don't mean to like generalize, but I think it's a fair thing to say that we all kind of grow up with an internalized like we are all kind of given an internalized idea of like what both male and female mean. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm. This is 100% what we're going to be talking about in my section about child development. So it's all good. Don't worry about it. That's definitely true. But I wanted to pull it girling because I wanted to posit um, that the way that Martins brings us to this idea of like how gender happens through these sort of repeated social interactions is also like a transgendering experience in Martin's case um, because the expectation here is flipped, right? Martin's is not a girl. <laughs> so um, this like girling that they experience does not culminate in girl gender. It culminates in a sort mm. of very tense, frightened male gender. So like I said, um, the archetypal trans narrative I have been talking about and usually involves a sense of disidentification with the trans person's assigned gender. They are in the, quote, wrong body. And so the way social gender norms shape the development of a child is also, quote, wrong. But importantly, in Afraid of Me, um, the disidentification is not between uh, Victor and women, right? It's not, oh, I'm not a girl. Why is this happening to me? It's oh, men are terrifying. I don't want to be a man, <laughs> which is like a really key shift. So, And, and this sort of is mapped through the way that mm. Victor recounts this because following the, um, ex- this, like they basically spend the first few pages of the book laying out all of the trauma they've experienced from men as a girl and then literally dis- depicted as descending from the heavens in a biblical looking tomb complete with halo and wings is feminism labeled on the page as the answer. While Martins is not suggesting here that men don't engage in feminism, but for them, feminism provided a temporary answer to the problem of being girled. Um, We see that Victor does not yet conceive of themselves as a non-girl. They have, like, a hard time identifying themselves as anything, textually, at this point. But they, uh, how do I say this? The Mm. feminism, it becomes a way to sort of engage in more masculine, actually, performance um, because it's like a rebellious gender expression, right? So they have the sequence where they're like, I cut my hair short. I don't shave my legs. Um, I, like, man's, I'll take up room on mm-hmm. the bus. So, like, engaging in sort of these, like, stereotypical masculine feminist ideas as, like, a rebellion, um, but not as, like, a, a way to alleviate dysphoria. And their gender identity also, the the way they like sort of draw out how they receive their gender identity is similar because it's also like a third party, in this case, a little cherub, literally descends from the heavens and is like, actually, you're a man. So it's like it becomes a very comedic moment, but it's very much about this like tension between 
Victor, like, trying to cope with their experiences of trauma um, and then learning that they're, like, figuring out for themselves that they are in the gender that is responsible for that trauma. And so, like, being sort of unable to Mm. work through what that means for themselves leading up to, in the book, a sort of description of an attempted suicide. Like, basically, the text takes us from better dead to a man to better a man than dead. And better a man than dead isn't even like a full, it's a question. It's not, it Mm. it becomes better a man than dead, question mark. So it's not an affirmation. It's a, well, this is a survival strategy Mm. at this point. Like the only thing I haven't done is let myself be this thing. So I was saying, yeah. Um, So Martin shapes the bodies through repeated violations and through the space it comes to occupy, perhaps reflecting the disassociation between the self and the body. Um, the dysphoria often leads to gender then also comes to be formed through these relationships. Um, Victor cannot access this normative masculinity precisely because their experiences as a girl permanently transform their ability to relate to masculinity. Um, thus the masculinity that Martin's exists creates exists in a fundamentally transgendered relationship to cis hegemonic masculinity. So this, this is a very much like a useful text for mm. looking at, I think these gendering strategies um, that I think will tie really well into what you're going to talk about. So I'm excited about that. And I used I do use this because I want I use this because I think and this is what I wrote Martin's characterization of trans masculinity through a specific sort of this male female social dynamic does reveal the ways that the quote male quote female dynamic may not be able to fully explain the particular impact of patriarchy in gender constructions. Or more simply, trans masculinity in afraid of me rests on a contradictory relationship between experiences of violence as a woman and experiences of self-actualization showing how trans masculinity must negotiate masculinity in a way that is markedly different from cisgender masculinity and that's really i mean obviously the reason i am interested in trans masculinity mm. is because i am in fact trans masculine i feel like it's worth to, like, <gasps> noting that right but like i do genuinely think <laughs> i know but like i do i do genuinely think that it's useful to study it because to be blunt, there's not really enough studied about masculinity in general, but especially thinking about the ways that non-dominant masculinities must sort of work in relationship to, like, dominant masculinities. So I think what I was getting at with that framework Mm -hmm. of, like, trans and cis versus male-female, doing it trans and cis sort of allows us to look at how these masculinities operate in a way that's different. Um, Because there is, I think, something different happening there, basically. Yeah. And so that's, I'm going to leave this at that and hand off to you unless you have any questions. No, you've done a great job. What your section made me think of is how in, in our masculinity episode, episode 18, about how the answer to toxic masculinity in schools and school violence often is more LGBTQIA education and acceptance in schools and working on changing that school climate. It's like the answer to school violence is accepting of ge- of other gender expressions and alternative gender. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of like gender is explicitly enforced through violence and that violence takes many forms. It could be like very literal. It can also be just like how we sort of discipline children um, for failing to conform to certain gender things. It can be in um, like what sort of things are allowed to happen. But yeah, I mean, I think I do remember, like I think that is like a really big part of it is like building those spaces 
for people to and that isn't I feel like new right like people have been arguing for that forever <laughs> Eve Sedgwick uh, has a <laughs> has an essay called um how to raise your kids up gay um where she sort of talks about how effeminate boys are treated as pathological and punished and about like like the need to allow for expressions of of like femininity in general so like yeah i know i'm don't i'm not going anywhere with that yes (laughs) i mean that's a perfect segue into um, my education section so again what i'm going to be talking about is just child development and sort of the latest Mm -hmm. in child development and also what we're talking about is like younger ages and transgender identities So we're going to start out talking about developmental research, and I wanted to start out with this just this paragraph from a paper I'm going to get more into later on in my segment, but it has a good summary of sort of where we're at with gender stereotyping in children. Oh, okay. So this is from Do Transgender... Oh, because actually gender stereotyping is something (laughs) that is studied a lot for decades if not a full century <laughs> of ch- how children children expectations because it's like very feminist right children's expectations on whether they should play with dolls or trucks you know all this gender mm. stereotyping it's something that is very very researched so this has a nice summary paragraph of sort of where that research lands so this was written in 2016 by Christina R. Olson mm-hmm. and Elizabeth E. A. Um, Enright. So this is from the paper, Do Transgender Children Gender Stereotype Less Than Their Peers and Siblings? Okay. So this paragraph just summarizes where we're at. Most children develop rudimentary gender stereotypes by late toddlerhood and explicitly endorse gender stereotypes by three to four years of age. Children typically show peak rigidity in gender stereotypes around early elementary years and then begin to show greater flexibility in gender stereotypes towards the middle of elementary school. Thus, while children become aware of more gender stereotypes throughout childhood, they show a curvilinear pattern of endorsement. Mm. So whether they agree with them and endorse those stereotypes or not. Increasing throughout early elementary years, and then a reduction of endorsement by later years. Despite these developmental functions, children continue to endorse some degree of gender stereotyping throughout childhood and into adolescence and adulthood. Most critical for present work, the paper that this is from, researchers have reported a particularly dramatic reduction in stereotype endorsement occurring between the ages of six and eight. Um, Again, to summarize, so they have some concept of gender stereotypes by late child okay. toddlerhood, explicitly endorse gender stereotypes by three to four, um, and then that fluctuates and uh, sort of reduces around ages six and eight. So this is what we're talking about. Those early pre-elementary to those elementary school ages. And part of this is sort of using the words gender stereotypes actually sort of in earlier research, it might have just said gender, mm. right? Like the way children children start to recognize gender by toddler, right? But what this is redefining it as, because this is a very trans positive paper, it's saying gender stereotypes. Children start to categorize through these gender stereotypes because gender isn't just a binary, right? Ah. So... There's always these papers about how 
we need to open up what we are studying. So this paper addresses how previous stereotyping research in children has been focused on gender conforming boys and girls and children who are not multiracial, right? Mm. So uh, children who identify with one racial category. Gotcha. Um, so this is from the paper, Beyond Discrete Categories, Studying Multiracial, Intersex, and Transgender Children Will Strengthen Basic Developmental Science. Um, it is by Yarrow Dunham and Christina R. Olson. Again, that Christina Olson is someone who comes up a lot. I'm going to talk more about Olson's project later, but doing some good work out there. So this yeah. is from the <laughs> Journal of Cognition and Development from 2016. <laughs> so we'll be talking more about stereotyping research later. So from the paper. However, our efforts to build theories that account for the true range of variation require acknowledging the increasing visibility of children who do not fit these discrete categories and raise the question of whether existing theories should capture the dynamics arise for them. The paper is asked to asking to broaden developmental research. The authors of this paper go on to say in their introduction, we review research that has gone through simple dichotomies by including multiracial, gender nonconforming, or intersex children, either as the targets of social perception or as participants themselves. We argue that this emerging work reveals problematic assumptions built into our theories and methods and highlights the value of building a more inclusive science. They are arguing against discrete categories such as black and white, man or woman, uh, quote, American or foreign. They are arguing this categorization in previous research has caused exclusion of many people's experiences, and therefore the development of research that uses this can't be applied to real-world social phenomena. Huh. First, many people do not fit binary identities, and thus their experiences may not be captured by the field. In fact, the number of people falling outside binary identities is growing in the United States, making this an increasingly large problem for our field that they're referring to child development. Right. For example, multiracial children grew from 1% of all American infants in 1970 to 10% of American infants in 2013. That's from Pew Research. Transgender people are coming out at younger and younger ages and are increasingly visible and vocal about this identity, meaning more people are becoming familiar with the existence of transgender individuals. So they're not saying there's just more more transgender <laughs> right. people now, because that would be a wild thing to say. But more people are coming out, they're coming out younger, and so people are just more aware. Right, yeah. In addition, genetic testing is making it clear that many more people might be intersex than originally believed, and these diagnoses are now being made at earlier and earlier ages, even before birth in some cases. Mm. This is all just awesome stuff, right? But skipping to the section of the paper on transgender children, the paper starts out by saying transgender individuals are understudied in mainstream cognitive development, so the people are actually statistically rare, but the identities are actually more frequent than many people believe. Somewhere between 2% and 3% of school-aged children both behave, quote-unquote, behave like the opposite sex, and quote, wish to be the opposite sex, with with regular frequency, suggesting that an unexpected, quote-unquote, mismatch between gender, sex and gender likely occurs within nearly one in every two classrooms. My own addition is, what does this mismatch mean? How do children experience gender? How are they expected to experience gender in this mismatch, their own ideas, or how others are perceiving them, or both? Yeah. Right? Is this the children saying that? <laughs> yeah, that's like such... But it, it's nice to recognize that there are, like, in one in every two classrooms in America, there's, like, 
kids who are like questioning the gender roles that are being assigned to them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, and that's like a huge amount of kids. So they aren't saying they're transgender, but they're just saying there's like a lot of kids who are asking questions about these genders and gender stereotypes. Depending on the specific definition one uses of the word intersex, mm -hmm. these children are also more common than many believe, and they represent 0.02% to 1.7% of children. So you see that's like a wide range, yeah. which, you know, makes me think that there needs to be more research. Yes, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Thus, although rare, these intersex and transgender children are at least as common as children who are blind or have Williams syndrome, which is a developmental disorder uh, defined by the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Mm. And so blind children and children who have Williams syndrome. And both of these groups have received considerable attention in the mainstream developmental literature. So even though they are rare, that does not mean these children should not be the subjects of research. Right, yeah. <laughs> So I sort of loved this. I actually think this um, paper isn't specifically about trans masculinity necessary, but it is about gender development in cisgendered boys growing up. Mm. Yeah. And so this actually really applies to w w what your paper was saying, Remus. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move on to what is the actual development <laughs> research that we do have. Right. right. Um, so this is from the paper, Boys with Gender Variant Behaviors and Interests from Theory to Practice. Um, this is by, I'm sorry, these names, I'm going to butcher them. Um, Slisarnaski, Poe, and Garcia. Mm -hmm. This is published in 2009 in the journal Sex Education. Hmm. So this is a paper about cisgendered boys or assigned male at birth children who are gender nonconforming. Okay. So this is by the people who wrote this paper, the authors. This article reflects our experiences of raising boys with gender variant behaviors and interests. Using a feminist perspective, we offer a new conceptual lens with which to view these boys, not as an alternate or pathogenic form of masculinity, but rather as a healthy expression of a gender continuum. We challenge the views that construct gender as a binary system, that define masculinity as the repudiation of the feminine, and that encourage homophobia. Mm. As we've talked about before, yes. masculinity as a definition that encourages homophobia. Traditionally, children with gender variant behaviors and interests have been viewed as needing psychological intervention, as I talked about in the introduction. So as a diagnosable mental illness, uh, this diagnosis being gender identity disorder, this placed the problem within the mind of the child and within the child's home environment. And we're trying to move past this mental diagnosis, right? Yes. In response to the social realities of non conforming gender presentations. Recent scholars such as radical, cultural, and multicultural feminists such as Judith Butler, Fausto Sterling, and Bell Hooks mm -hmm. have challenged the notion that gender is a binary system comprised of two dichotomous entities, arguing against that that is multifaceted, complex, always changing, and infinitely social cultural in nature. Mm -hmm. We want to echo this feminist deconstruction of gender as a binary system and instead place gender expression on a continuum that allows changing and fluid expressions of boyness and girlness and all variations within. Did you want to add anything? Yeah. Well, so uh, because I, I, I sort of at, at the transition, I mentioned that How to Bring Your Kids Up Gay essay by Sedgwick, which is written in 91. So about 20 years before this paper. But she she talks about sort of uh, revised definitions of homosexuality, um, like the pathology of homosexuality, basically. 
and is sort of talking about how in order for homosexuality to become depathologized, yeah. gender deviance need to become pathologized. Um, so, quote, for example, extremely, quote, extremely and chronically effeminate boys, this is the abject that haunts revisionist psychoanalysis. The same DSM-3 that published in 1980 was the first that did not contain an entry for homosexuality, was also the first that did contain a new diagnosis numbered for insurance purposes, 30260, gender identity disorder of childhood. Uh, nominally gender neutral mm. this diagnosis is actually highly differential between boys and girls a girl gets this label only in the rare case of asserting she is atomically male um quote that she has or will grow a penis while a boy can be treated for gid of childhood if he merely asserts quote that it would be better to not have a penis or alternatively if he displays a quote preoccupation with female stereotypical activities so i think that's like also useful to this conversation because i know this paper is about uh, a male at birth assigned children is that like how much more closely that's mo like a fem like being feminine is monitored right um no i agree and i think um i mean i personally find it's uncomfortable right talking about this medical diagnosis as a mental illness yeah. and how that is the problem of the child and the problem of the environment they're in i mean it's so problematic yeah. to a transgender um, identity. And so, I mean, I deleted almost everything of that. But what I like is that what we're talking about is moving beyond that, yeah. right? Moving towards a place in which we are respecting and working with children and trying to broaden these definitions of boyness and girlness, mm -hmm. right? Which I think is awesome. So again, from the same paper, uh, this paragraph is from um, just like talking about masculinity specifically. It referenced to another a scholar named Kimmel, mm -hmm. um, has written extensively on the construction of masculinity and describes it as having multifold purposes and processes. Masculinity as power. Masculinity as the flight from the feminine. Masculinity as a homosocial enactment. And masculinity as homophobia. These constructions of masculinity serve to box boys into taking on characteristics and behaviors that are based on aggressive and competitive virtues and that center on generating feelings of toughness and strength. Mm -hmm. Conversely, femininity is constructed around virtues of nurturance, caring, and compassion with accompanying behaviors that are small and quiet. Thus, boys who engage in non-conforming behaviors are perceived as girly and valued less as men. Yeah. And so conclusions, uh, boys with gender variant behaviors and interests are not pathogenic or deviant, but are rather an alternative and healthy form of masculinity. Because they've challenged the binary system of two genders, the feminine and the masculine, they disrupt the neat boxes that we as a culture utilize to constrain and regulate gender expression. Mm -hmm. And so these papers are from the Trans Youth Project. So the Trans Youth Project is that Christina R. Olson person, also with Celine uh, Gulgos. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of a really the first empirical investigation into gender development in socially transitioning children. Okay. The Trans Youth Project is a longitudinal study of gender development among socially transitioned prepubescent transgender children ages 3 to 12 at the start of the study from North America. Oh. So this is a huge project. It is only in its early stages. Right. Um, so this is a paper on sort of the early findings from this project, gender development in transgender children. So the early work of the Trans Youth Project cohort suggests that there are a myriad 
of ways in which socially transitioned transgender children look like gender matched children in terms of their gender identities and gender expression. Okay, so I'm skipping a lot of this paper, um, but I think it's really interesting, right? Yeah. So this paper kind of pulls from this other paper, which is do transgender children gender stereotype less than their peers and siblings? So basically, transgender children who have socially transitioned, and by socially transitioned, I mean they are out at school. Right. Um, living their gender identity. Right. Um, transgender children differ from other children and their endorsement of gender stereotypes that we, we talked about before mm. and response to others' gender nonconformity. Our results indicate that transgender children and the siblings of transgender children, which is key, right? The cisgender siblings of transgender children endorse gender stereotypes less than the control group. Right. Further, transgender children see violations of gender stereotypes as more acceptable and they are more willing to indicate a desire to, to be friend and attend school with someone who violates gender stereotypes than the control participants. Mm. And if you think about this, I don't have any examples, but if you're thinking about a three-year-old, a four-year-old, it's really easy to imagine them saying, that's for boys, or mm -hmm. like, you can't play with that doll, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I babysat. Right? So, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> kids, kids, yeah, they, act, it's they like, mimic a very rigid language, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's like, something that seems, like, it's a way of finding their own identities, right? I am yeah. this and you are this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a development of identity, mm -hmm. um, and that's not always going to be the case for every child, right? Yeah. And so, what this paper is saying is that transgender children, even very young, don't do that if they are transgender or if they are siblings with a transgender child. Mm. Young, socially transitioned transgender children's gender development often follows a unique path. Pilot data from 60 interviews with parents of socially transitioned ch transgender children in our lab suggest that more than 90% of these transgender children displayed gender nonconformity from the perspective of the child's natal sex, which is what they call like assigned at birth, um, is natal. Okay. I don't know why that's what they've decided to do. I guess um, it's easier so. than. <laughs> yes, I think that's actually what it is, is that it's easier when they're writing. Yeah. Um, so 90% of these transgender children displayed gender nonconformity before their fourth birthday mm. and did so consistently for the next few years with children spending an average of four years displaying gender nonconformity before socially transitioning. Of course, after their social transitions, children continue to engage in the same behaviors, which now, from the perspective of their quote-unquote new identity, appear as gender conforming. Mm. I think this is really interesting. Right. Because it, it, it just like really kind of I just <laughs> I really love how it's like the idea of gender nonconforming. And then when they socially transition, 90 percent of their studies. Right. This is for 60. Yes. Yeah. They then appear as gender conforming because they've socially transitioned. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, up to now, what Remus was talking about was assumptions. This is actually the data. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I real 
realize it seems very obvious, but this is the first time we have data. No, I mean, <laughs> and it's just so interesting. That is useful because I think that's. Um, I mean, I've joked about this when I was talking to you while I was working on this paper. Is that a lot of this is very like, literally, all I'm saying is that trans masculinity is different from cis masculinity, but like you have to write that. <laughs> Because it's just not, it's not there. <laughs> yes. And what this is saying is that before transgender children socially transitioned, they were gender non-conforming. Yes. And then they've transitioned and they're gender conforming. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but just because they're conforming with the gender that they identify with socially. Yeah. At this point, they are still much more accepting of non-conforming gender stereotypes mm-hmm. of like of children who are non-conforming, right? Who are expansive in their gender identities. So it's key to recognize that, right? Just because you're conforming doesn't mean you are stereotyping or biased, yeah. right? Towards that. They are much more open-minded than cisgendered, their cisgendered counterparts. Right, so I'm going to start moving on into supporting transgender and gender expansive children in school. And this is, a, right, so this is something that I was have researched and we've talked about this in the past. So gender non-conforming, right, not sort of fitting into the stereotypes of what you expect and sort of reworking that language, especially within the school system into gender expansive children, <laughs> like children right. expanding gender um, to make it less of a negative, right? Yeah. So this is an article from... 2018 by Mangin um, or Mangin. School policies and practices can profoundly affect children whose gender identity differs from their sex assigned at birth. And I've talked about this a lot in the transgender school climate episode is like, how can transgender and gender expansive children be um, supported in schools? Mm. And here's just a few more numbers because it is really important to talk about research studies, right? So Mm -hmm. While there is no conclusive data, not yet, for children under the age of 13, 0.7% of teenagers ages 13 to 17, or approximately 150,000 youth, identify as transgender. And this is from 2017. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems low. That seems low. Yeah, that seems really low. (laughs) So we'll see who Herman, where Herman got that. But if you look about this, so therefore schools with more than 143 children are almost certain to have at least one transgender child, mm. right? But so a, one out of 134 is like a lot, yeah, right? So if you think about a school, usually it's hundreds of kids. So you're going to have a few transgender students generally, at least according to the statistic. The idea that children can be transgender often surprises cisgender adults who wonder how children can know who their gender as we've experienced, as we've <laughs> talked about, developmental psychologists agree that children's core gender identity develops by the age of three and continues to develop through young adulthood, a fact that is seldom questioned in non-transgender children. Mm-hmm. So I realize this is a very silly point to keep saying, but children recognize and understand gender by three years old. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right? This is a tough one. This is sometimes a very, very difficult one for cisgender adults, for adults in schools, for principals, for administration, for teachers, to respect and understand children know their gender by three. They might not know the words for it, but they are experiencing and understanding gender. So, how can teachers promote a sense of belonging? 
specifically what educational practices can promote this sense. Sadly, many transgender and gender expansive children do not feel included in their classroom community. And tragically, many of these children experience harassment or worse. Mm -hmm. The 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey found that 54% of those who were out or perceived as transgender in K-12 schools were verbally harassed. Nearly one quarter, 24%, were physically attacked. And 13% were sexually assaulted in K-12 because of being transgender. And this is from a 2016 study. Mm -hmm. These kinds of negative experiences put transgender students at risk for social exclusion, emotional distress, and disrupted learning. The good news is that teachers can make changes in their classroom that significantly impact children's sense of belonging. And so let's get into a lesson plan that you can do and also some books that you can have. And find ways to be including that because it's best. It's best for transgender children. It's also is best for cisgender children. It's good for everyone. So this is a lesson plan from Glisten, which is the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. And actually, I had to go off of the Glisten website to find that definition. So part of me thinks that they're probably <laughs> way beyond Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network because they talk about transgender yeah. individuals a lot. So Glisten doesn't even have a definition of what Glisten is. That's website. interesting. I wonder if they're trying um, to rebrand a little bit, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true for a lot of these organizations that have been around for longer than 10 years, because like GSAs went from Gay Straight Alliance to Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Yeah. Something like that. Just like trying to, people are realizing that it's more than sexual identity, right? Mm -hmm. It's also gender identity. So this is a lesson plan called That's a Gender Stereotype. (laughs) It's for elementary school kids. It's for ages For grades uh, one through three. Mm -hmm. So this lesson, I'm going to link it. So what it explains is what the word stereotype is to elementary students. By playing the stereotype game, students will get to participate in challenging gender stereotypes and the many ways that we can fit or break them. They will list some common gender stereotypes for girls and boys and learn how all children can decide for themselves for what they like and what they want to be when they grow up. So the objective is that students will define stereotypes and explore how they relate to gender. Students will list examples of gender stereotypes and discuss their limitations. Students will reflect on their own gender in relation to those stereotypes. So basic, we're going to link this, but there's also, so there's a few steps. They reflect on their own likes. They define stereotype, which is a simple idea that many people believe about a large group of people that is not true for everyone in that group. Mm, Kids can start to come up with stereotypes such as activities, colors, and professions. They also want to recognize that you can also come up with stereotypes for all, quote, children, as well as boys and girls, which leaves space for non-binary people. And make sure that you're not reinforcing the gender binary with your own stereotype (laughs) (laughs) project, right? <laughs> and so kids are going to say you're going to come up with a list so you're going to figure out if that you fit or break those stereotypes and sort of facilitate discussions about that and sort of remind students that gender stereotypes are harmful because they take a simple idea and try to say it's for everyone mm-hmm. so this is an awesome uh, lesson plan we'll link that and then there's sort of an older students version called the breakdown which is a similar lesson plan about identifying transphobia in their everyday lives in schools and so i'm going to link that again and we've talked about this before right 
a scaffolding, right? So we have an elementary school version that just talks about gender in like an expansive way. And then for older students, you're actually going to be talking about transgender and talking about transphobia and how this genderism, how transphobia, it comes through in these stereotypes that they mm. witness, right? So those are some lesson plans. I'm sure there's more. Those are the ones from the Glisten website. We're going to move into the book section. Yeah. And I sort of start with um, a paper from 2011 by Crisp and Hiller, and it was printed in Children's Literature and Education. And the paper is titled, Is This a Boy or a Girl? Rethinking Sex Role Representation in Caldecott Medal-Winning Picture Books from 1938 to 2011. 1937 is when Caldecott started. Yeah. The article begins by discussing queer theorists' work in terms of gender, specifically citing Judith Butler, saying gender is a series of repeated actions rather than a thing. However, even with this complex understanding of gender, gender role socialization, mm -hmm. as we've talked about in Remus's section, remain firmly entrenched in most children. This paper is from 2011. I don't know if those are the words that the last papers would be using. Right. Uh, so rather than gender role socialization, maybe what we can say is that gender stereotypes remain firmly entrenched in most children. Yeah. I mean, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about with uh, Ahmed's concept of girling, which was building on Butler, is that like the way that, quote, socialization happens is through these repeated actions, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think it's useful to actually be reading these older papers and, yeah. and trying to understand that that language might be dated, but we can shift yeah. that into our new understanding. It doesn't mean the paper is <laughs> no longer a viable source. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I mean, that's like so key to talk about gender, especially. I mean, there's like a thing I've noticed that Oh, gosh. Every book by a trans, like every book on trans theory literally starts with like a five page section. that's like, here's the language I'm using. By the time this book gets published, this language will be wrong. Here's why I'm using it anyway. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. I think we talked about that in our Catherine Jeffrey yes. Jones yeah. episode, right? Very early on, sort of why when language becomes dated, that isolates us from our elders. It isolates us from our own history. Yes. And so it's useful to recognize that shift and not, you know, get rid of it. Just get rid of yes. all this work. So this is from that paper on the Caldecott picture books. Uh, so children are able to differentiate by kindergarten masculine and feminine roles, whether explicitly instructed through adults or implicitly through the media. Right. The paper then goes on to talk about gender in Caldecott metal books from the years 1938 to 2011, one of the most prominent American children's book awards, which is also guaranteeing phenomenal sales, right? If you win a, one of these awards, millions of copies of this book is going to be circulated. Right, yeah. It's they are deal. talking about gender images as well as words and readers' interpretations. So I just sort of skipped, <laughs> I skipped it, and now here's the conclusion. But basically it's talking about boys, boy characters, female characters, and the way in which children reading them read gender into things, right? Okay. Whether it's explicitly on the page or implicitly on the page. Gotcha. So- in conclusion, this study ultimately makes clear that there is a need for wider representations of diverse gendered identities in all children's literature. Although the Caldecott Medal is not awarded for diverse gender representations, as the most prestigious award for illustrations in American children's picture books, winning titles reach a wide audience and may have a profound influence on readers. 
These books legitimize and validate experiences, providing spaces that allow readers to locate images of themselves and the people they love. The power of such narratives cannot be paralleled. Awarding the prestigious Caldecott a medal to books that provide wide-ranging depictions of what it means to self-identify or resist identification as male or female may work to position readers to acknowledge the existence of the range of people who represent gender in all its complexity. Okay. And so what I do want to move into is this wonderful picture book that just came out, 2019, When Aiden Became a Brother. Huh. It was written by Kyle Lukoff um, and illustrated by Kayla. Bonnie Juanita. Um, it was published by Lee and Lowe. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read this uh, summary. I think it's wonderful. And the book is beautiful. And I really recommend it if you have a young person at home or if you know young people. Everyone thought Aiden was a girl when he was born. But Aiden knows that he was really another kind of boy. He felt like his room belonged to someone else. And when he, he always ripped and stained his clothes accidentally on purpose. Finally, Aiden cuts his hair short, dons clothes that suit him better, and tells his parents it took everyone time to adjust, and they learned a lot from other families with transgender kids like him. Hashtag own voices, author Lukoff, so Lukoff himself is transgender man, Mm -hmm. writes with sensitivity and candor as Aiden takes his first steps toward claiming his identity. When his mother is expecting another child, Aiden excitedly prepares for his big brother role and seeks to welcome his sibling in a way that could fit this new person no matter who they grew up to be. Juanita illustrates with fine ink illustrations and loose patterns, filling Aiden's revamped bedroom with cozy fabrics and populating a family baby shower with balloons that spell out an inclusive triumphant sign. It's a baby. The creator's exploration of one transgender child's experiences emphasizes the importance of learning how to love someone for exactly who they are. It's for ages five to six. It's really a lovely book because what it does is it talks about sort of that transition of Aiden growing up in a way that he didn't identify with, Mm. right? And then his mother becomes pregnant and then they very purposely don't create a gendered expectation for the baby. Oh. I think it's just really beautiful. That's really <laughs> so it like sort of has that social transition from raising children as a certain gender mm-hmm. to raising children to allow them to find out who they are themselves. Right. Right. I think it's like really beautiful yeah. and timely. Um, and then another book that is really, really quite beautiful. Another picture book is It Feels Good to Be Yourself, a book about gender identity by Teresa Thorne and Noah Gringy. And that is also one that is like about transgender children but also about gender expansive children and being who you are and accepting others and it's just like very beautiful little book um and then i wanted to throw in some comics because i guess we're a comics podcast or whatever (laughs) something like that um so i already have (laughs) something like that um i already have a list of transgender inclusive comics for kids on the episode 17 citations if you just want to go grab those like cucumber quest and gem and the holograms Mm -hmm. and my own book the breakaways but here's a few more so i also have the witch boy by molly ostertag which is very specifically about gender non-conforming gender expansive um growing up Mm -hmm. a quick and easy guide to they them pronouns by archie bongiovanni and tristan jimerson which is more of a 
instructional comic on how to use they them pronouns for basically anyone right. and so understanding transgender and non-binary identity for cisgender people and then i haven't read this one yet um so i don't know how age appropriate it might be depending on the age range but i'm really excited to get my hands on gender queer a memoir by maya kobabe have you read that one yet? um i have not read the book i've read uh maya's like zines like the small gender queer zines um, which are all really lovely. Awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited for the book. And then there's also queercartoonist.com, which is a queer cartoonist database of different uh, queer cartoonists. So there's uh, transgender and transmasculine people on that website making awesome comics and awesome work. So publishing, please keep putting out more books so I can keep adding to this list. That's a short one. <laughs> And that ends my segment. Awesome. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So now it is time for our conclusion segment. Uh, so what did we learn? What are our goals? What do we want our takeaways to be? Do you have any conclusions, Remus? Um... <laughs> I mean, I don't. I um. I think just that what I'm interested in, um, and what I hope has come across is just like that we pay attention to how trans people write about their own experiences and yeah. i because i think that I, I focused on autobiography because autobiography intersects really neatly a bunch of the different formats that i'm like writing about um so it made sense for me to use autobiography as a case study in this particular instance but like I, mm -hmm. Very obviously, autobiography is not the only format that trans people are working in. Um, and I think there's like equally a richness <laughs> in looking at like fiction and nonfiction um, more generally as categories um, and just sort of trying to parse out what is happening with gender in a way that is not just looking at like, well, is this male or is this female, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really like a really interesting. I'm really happy to always be working with you, Remus, <laughs> because I think it's really interesting how, I mean, hopefully this is actually useful to you to be able to actually have child development research yeah. to then apply. <laughs> no, I'm definitely going <laughs> to, I'm going to be reading through all of transgender Olsen's stuff for sure. Yeah, to like <laughs> how transgender children literally develop right mm -hmm. <laughs> like like it's there it's not oh this like mysterious thing <laughs> that we have like strange depictions of in fiction right yeah. right and memoir right i think it's just wonderful and i'm really happy that the especially this trans youth project is doing yeah, this work it's super exciting which is great yeah and hopefully they'll just keep putting out more and more research papers so i'll see you back in a year for <laughs> another update oh yeah of course <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now it's time for Letters to the Editor, a regular segment where we revisit uh, past topics and add new research. But that was basically what this episode was. And also sometimes we read your email, even though Letters to the Editor as the title of the segment was always a joke. Now it almost feels like embarrassing when we don't have an email. But you can email us. <laughs> Um, which is please our email is at drawing a dialogue at gmail.com we love getting your letters but this was always a joke um yeah it, we definitely yeah because we aren't editors i don't know it's fine we don't expect anything but it is nice and people too yeah i mean no feel free um or tweet at us um you can tweet us at draw a dialogue um if you have a tweeter yeah um 
So, do you have anything for letters to the editor? We have a couple of months here of stuff. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can talk about something. Um, I <laughs> I was trying to think of if it was related, but yeah. Um, so Liot uh, Ben Moshe, who is a really cool, um, she is a disability um studies activist and scholar um who works on sort of the intersection between disability studies and critical prison studies came to uf we were doing last uh this month has been um the disability resource center has been doing like disability advocacy month um so she visited for that and gave a talk on how we can sort of use the the history of um deinstitutionalization as sort of um a i don't want to say like a map but like as a productive site of inquiry for what decarceralization would look like um so sort of like connecting so deinstitutionalization for those who might not be aware was basically um when the movement in the 60s to cut to sort of end the the practice of uh psychiatric like long-stay high psychiatric hospitals um right because historically disabled and mentally ill people were put into institutions asylums right um and sort of imprisoned there right and there's like a a history of how that like is no longer the standard practice um a lot of people say it failed but like it's complicated and her point was that we can sort of like look at what was happening with that movement to like map onto what decarceralization could look like and wow yeah she's really cool that's um she um her book is coming out um next year and it's going to be called it's called decarcerating disability deinstitutionalization and prison abolition um so that's coming that's amazing that's coming out in 2020 yeah she's great she's done an edited volume um with a couple of scholars that i've talked with like a couple of people i've talked about on this podcast and stuff so i she's cool look into her (laughs) awesome that's yeah thank you so much what was her name again just one more time liat ben moshe cool i'm we'll make sure to put her name on maybe some other does she have a website or anything we can link in yeah, the presentation yeah. of the notes? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about my latest comic book conventions. I was at New York Comic Con a few weeks ago in early October. Um, I got invited to do a comic arts in education workshop at the New York Public Library. You know, the main branch with the lions. And I was so excited to get a photo with the lions. And then the lions were being restored. So there were just big boxes. And it was like so, such a bummer. But I was really, really honored to be invited. Thank you so (laughs) much. Um, the panel went really great. I did like all sorts of other stuff. I also did a queer comics panel with um, uh, Mariko Tamaki, Ngozi, Colleen, and Rosemary. Um, and so we talked about queer comics. And there's a couple of articles about that I can also link. Um, that was really wonderful. Yeah. It just feels it feels very progressive. Not only in so it's just like to be recognized at New York comic-con which is like giant and to have like such a well-attended art education panel but also a well-attended queer comics panel it's just so wonderful i was really really quite honored to be there thank you to everyone who helped make it happen including uh first second my publisher for the breakaways um, who helped pay for my travel super cool and then also me and Remus also were at Mice. Yes. Um in mid-October, um, which is the Massachusetts Indie Comics Expo. 
I was a special guest this year. Uh, I also, again, there was a super awesome, well-attended art education, comics and education, and also not only K through 12 education, but higher education panel. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone I was on with the, in that panel was super cool and they filmed it and it should be on YouTube. And if it's up, I'll put in the citation notes. And if it's not up yet, I'll put it in there eventually when it arrives <laughs> <laughs> depending on when you listen to this episode it will probably be there so that was just really wonderful i also taught a workshop and it's really funny to do this podcast and do a lot of talking about education and then actually getting to do comics workshops is always just such a treat there were like 40 or 50 kids crammed in this oh, tiny room and we so all drew cool. monsters and wrote comics and made zines and it was just the best it was so much fun this is my call if you want me to come do a workshop anywhere in the world if you help me get there i want to do it let me know (laughs) (laughs) i love it so much that's why i talk about it on this podcast all right i'm getting passionate um how was your mice (laughs) oh it was lovely um it's always nice to sort of take a break from school I didn't do anything fancy. I just and tabled and had a good time. <laughs> I mean, it's a good time. Mice is truly a good time. Yeah, it's a great show. I love mice. If you are ever in the Boston area, hit it up. It's yeah. wonderful. Um, thank you to the comics, Boston Comics Roundtable, um, who helped make it happen. They they are just a great group of organizers. It was the 10 year, not the anniversary of the show. That's next year. Somehow it's like been 10 years of this, but it's not the 10 year anniversary. I don't know, but it's awesome. Yeah. And I'm very honored. I <laughs> when the workshop was over, I was like, I deserve an award. This was so much fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> someone give me an award for how much fun I had. <laughs> I don't I mean, I don't know that they make awards for that, but perhaps they should. <laughs> I had a great time at the workshop award. It. Yes, that's how I felt. It was really fun. So that's it. That's it. Yeah. Letters to the editor. Please email us. Email us. Um, so thank you to Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's our intro and outro. Um, you can get it off their album Full Communism. Um, it's on their band camp. Uh, support independent musicians. Don't support Amazon. <laughs> yes. A lot of indie musicians, including Downtown Boys right now, have signed a petition against Amazon. So yeah. Bandcamp rules because you're pay- buying it direct. It's like yeah. it's such a more independent web platform. So Support independent platforms. why I mention Bandcamp every episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can go to drawingadialogue.com to view all the citations for this podcast. Uh, drawingadialogue.com is hosted by Comic Art Ed, which is Kathy's art education website. You can email you. us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Uh, like we said, we like emails. I think we said that like a thousand times already. Um, you can also tweet at us. <laughs> Very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can also tweet at us at drawadialogue uh, because ing doesn't fit on Twitter. And you can t- tweet slash f- just don't tweet me, but follow me on Twitter at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A. <laughs> don't tweet at Remus. Don't, please don't. Just follow. Yes. <laughs> you can t- tweet and follow me <laughs> at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Kathy G. John. I don't know. Inst- I'm, you know. 
people enjoy Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I have an Instagram, but I keep it secret so my students can't follow me. Uh <laughs> <gasps> I just keep my Instagram PG. Yeah, well, 18, um, you know, it's 18 year old. Parental guidance for my Instagram. Okay. <laughs> Call your mom. Let her know. <laughs> you're call- you're on my Instagram looking at my fish. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. So what are you so I think that's all of it. So what are you reading? Um, what I'm reading, I just finished a New York Times bestseller book called Small Fry. Ah. It's a memoir by Lisa Brennan Jobs, okay. um, which is Steve Jobs's daughter. I didn't know that when I started and was sort of confused. So <laughs> it's it's mostly about her experience with her father. It's mostly about Steve Jobs. If you're into Steve Jobs, ah, you can read this book. I read gotcha. it because I joined a book club. This was not my first choice. Um, uh, what are you reading, Remus? Um, so I have been um, sitting in on a couple of classes for uh, an African-American sexualities and genders course I couldn't take this semester. Um, but I like the professor a lot. So I was wow. just like, can I sit in? And she was like, yeah. Uh, that sounds so, awesome. So for that class, I read we read a book called I mean, let me get the author's name, but Perfect Peace. Have you heard of Perfect Peace? It's by uh, Daniel Black. No. So Perfect Peace is a really interesting book uh, and very relevant to this episode, I think. It's about, um, it's set in like a southern rural, like 1920s southern rural family uh, community. And it, the plot essentially is that uh, the mother of this like large family of like all boys really wants a daughter. And so when her final son is born, um, she tells everyone that he's a girl and dresses him up as a girl and raises him as a girl for eight years. And then on his eighth, like shortly after his eighth birthday, like tells him, like reveals the truth. And it's about sort of like... Uh, how he has to adapt to suddenly having to shift basically from having been raised as a girl to like having to be a man now. Um, oh. Yeah. So there's like a lot of like really interesting things happening in there with like gender and especially masculinity um, and sort of like the social aspects of that. It's like, it's like a really imperfect, but like fascinating um like i mm. it's been a while since like i read a book where i read the whole thing in one go because i was like i need to find out what happens um <laughs> yeah wow. so like i read, I read it all a big like, endorsement yeah no it's um it's really it's very interesting and there's not a lot of like writing about it because it's not very well known um but like yeah definitely some like very interesting stuff with gender happening in there and like i don't know it, it like pivots on a very interesting conceit i think so yeah cool thank you so much I'll have to look that up. Yeah. And thank you uh, for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. Uh, My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye. Bye.